So today we are looking at the theology of the body. This is going to be the first of two sessions we're going to do on the theology of the body. Um, so you know, Jacob's doing a whole course on this. Yes. You're doing a whole course on this? Have done. Have done, okay. Any of the rest of you? No. Um, so the theology of the body has been hugely influential in the church. Um, as I've said, I think before, it's actually quite difficult to, in everything else I'm teaching in this course, to say what bits of what I'm giving you haven't actually been influenced by him. Because there are lots of things that indirectly he's just changed the whole narrative in context. Um, but I think he is, John Paul II, so significant that it's worth our having an explicit focus on him, even if we're only going to do one week of that. So that's going to be today and Wednesday. So um, today's lecture, I'm aiming to kind of introduce the theme um, and then more or less do a lecture summary of the reading material you did for today. Then on Wednesday, we're going to look at, um, as we'll see, was actually kind of the focus there from the beginning, which was um, an argument against contraception. It was actually implicit in the whole language of gifts and how the bodies relate to each other and so forth. But we'll save that till Wednesday. Okay. So um, let's look at the lecture notes I've given you. So I start on the page there just with some introductory comments about John Paul II himself. Um, so first to note, he was the longest reigning pontiff of the 20th century, over 26 years. That in itself is significant. He was a big influence in the church. To remember historically, he was, even before he was elected Pope, he was a philosopher and theologian in his own right. He was someone who somehow, I don't know how he was able with the communist restrictions, but he would travel the world and speak at conferences elsewhere. He was a man, a thinker in his own right. What were his defining themes as Pope? Well, as I would summarize it there, that the dignity of the human person, so his first encyclical had that as its focus on Christ, Redemptor Hominis. Christ is the redeemer of man, meaning that man is capable of being redeemed, that man has this dignity. And that that links with, I've said there, a vision of hope in human potential. Even amidst the horrors of the 20th century wars and the twin problems as he's preaching with you know, a switch between directing himself, atheists, communist dictatorship, and nihilistic materialist capitalism. In both of these contexts, he had a message of hope, that man is this great thing with dignity, and that he's called to something better than these two opposing solutions that were on offer. And so his opening words as Pope, his opening message, be not afraid. Uh, note that in terms of moral theology, um, kind of the context of our course, his defining theme, I think it is fair to say, was the dignity and beauty of sex and marriage. So remember too, uh, you know, the, the, um, every council has pariti, uh, experts, behind the scenes are advising the bishops, involved in the writing up of various documents. He was one of those. Um, 
So, you know, there are people that speculate that the bits of Gaudiumet spares that he frequently quoted as Pope, he may have been very significant in drafting in the beginning at the council. Um, so he was a figure right the way through. Then I say, and you know, historically, I lived through at least some of this. You know, he was already Pope when I was a young man, but I saw the shift in the church from, at least in the West, a state of chaos, confusion, decline, to um, you know, a state of renewal and evangelization. And even though in the West that's very patchy in where we find that, and you know, in Western Europe, there are places where you really would have to say, did he have much of an impact? There are lots of other places where the reverse is true. And that I think what inspired us, what gave us hope, um, it was him. Um, he was an incredible figure. And then my last kind of introductory, the question is, he, does he merit the title the great? Um, so there are only a few popes in history that have had this title, you know, Leo the Great, Gregory the Great. Um, does he merit the title the great? Well, all those in history that have had that title, so notice they had three things. Yes, they were saints, but many of the popes were saints and weren't called great. They were teachers, but many popes were teachers, good teachers, but weren't called great. But they were also, if they were great, the third thing, administrative reformers that they came into the church usually in some state of chaos, decline, and they reformed structurally. And I think in all fairness, everyone would acknowledge this is his weakest field. You know, clearly he was an inspirational figure as saint. He was a, an amazing teacher. What was he like structurally? Well, I know only history is gonna be able to really assess that. And I would say already, you know, more than a decade after his death, I'd be much more favorable in assessing his administration and structural impact than I was at the time. At the time, it seemed like he wasn't doing anything. Um, and it seemed like, you know, all the bishops he was appointing across the world, he was appointing many of his enemies, um, people that contradicted the things he said. Um, but I think in part that's because he was a very big-hearted man and a man who had confidence in his message, enough to even appoint people that weren't exactly carbon copies of him. Um, and I think, you know, more than a decade on, we see lots, and I think especially here in America, places of renewal in the church that take their inspiration from what he started, and he needs to therefore be given the credit for that. He issued the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So that, you know, that was the first catechism in four centuries. It's very rare for a catechism to be issued. There's a Council of Trent and this that really are historically the two great catechisms. Um, and the reform of the Code of Canon Law. So administratively, actually, that was a, a major achievement. And it brings into it the vision of marriage, a much more positive view of marriage that would reflect his teaching as well, even though, you know, he doesn't directly quote it. So that's kind of five minutes on, on the man. Where, where's all this coming from? 
Well, a man, I'm trying to say, of significance in himself. So what was the theology of the body? Well, as I say there, it was articulated by him over the course of five years, from 1979 to 1984, and articulated in his weekly general audience addresses, um, but also in his apostolic exhortation from the Irish Consortium. So you know the Wednesday audience, every week the Pope addresses the crowd, and he'll say kind of two pages worth of script usually, not, not hugely long, and John Paul II, somewhat weirdly, took that format to be the context in which he was going to launch into a five-year catechesis um, on the theology of the body. Um, so that was kind of the, the genre he was articulating his theology. Lots of little bits, in a sense, um, spread out over five years. Now, how did he do that? Well, I say that he blended a number of things. So what, on one hand, a natural law, a reason-based analysis of human nature. But he articulated it while giving scriptural exegesis. Um, as you'd have heard in that reading from Genesis. Which is actually kind of a weird thing to do. Because he's giving a vision of moral theology, a vision of natural law theology, what reason is able to figure out but he's articulating it while speaking about scripture. Um, so it's a curious methodology, but I think it's one that many have found quite accessible and attractive. So when you're talking about two figures, Adam and Eve, their experience, um, human experience, it's much more pleasant to read than having a philosophical discourse about the nature, nature and purpose, fulfillment, um, so that was his, his pattern uh, I noticed also it was an experiential reflection on human existence so I'm sure you all heard he was what's called a phenomenologist that means his philosophy focused on phenomena um, and human experience in particular so Yes, talking about Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve as examples of human experience. And with all of this, a focus on personalism and meaning rather than law and obligation. So yes, there is law and obligation are there in the background as they are in any talk of the moral life, but that wasn't his focus. And this blend makes it difficult to read as straight theology. It's not a normal theological format. Often he seems to mix analogy and symbolism. So for example, as conservative critics disagree as to how to read his comparisons of the Trinity and family. So, you know, the father and the son are not married, but they beget. So, you know, there's lots of bits of his analogy that some of his critics have said, you know, that's rubbish. Um, but the nature of analogy is you're comparing two things that are similar but are not the same. Um, and linked with this, I think also format-wise, his style, I would say, is poetic 
And when you talk about poetry, poetry communicates truths, but it doesn't do so in a didactic manner. So you've got to, if you're going to engage with it or critique it, you've got to do that knowing the, the genre you're engaging in. Then my kind of last introductory thing on that page, just note about contraception. So when Humanae Vitae came out, the encyclical 1968, the church was incredibly divided. Um, if you know your history, in the secular world, 1968 was the summer of love. It was the, the year everything went crazy. And that was the year that the Pope comes out with an affirmation, um, no, you can't use the pill. Um, and the church was, you know, fortunately I wasn't alive then, um, but you, there probably aren't many old, old priests for you to meet to talk through, but it was a tough time in the church, a tough time to be a priest. You talk to laity from that era, they'll talk about how it was tough for them to know what was the right thing to do. Um, they were hearing bishops say different things, priests say different things. What John Paul II's theology of the body does, among other things, is it gives a new rationale for the old teaching, in particular on contraception. So it's not just holding the line, it's not just saying you've got to keep the law, it's actually giving a whole new packaging in context. Guessing all that you've heard before, I'm not pretending this is hugely original, but this is all some introductory thoughts before we look at his text himself. Okay, so page two, then. So in the reading and material you had from Anthony Percy, um, Theology of the Body Made Simple, um, this is, actually, as I was reading it again yesterday, it is very simple. I hope you didn't feel too <laughs> insulted by it. Um, but he does do a great job of summarizing five years um, into some nice tidy themes. Um, the lectures I've put together have structured themselves around a different package of themes. Um, different scholars I've read over the years will summarize him with different chapter headings, so to speak. Um, so you've read Percy's summary. Um, I'm going to structure my summary around what I call the, the three states of man. Um, the original man, the historical man, and the eschatological man. Um, and part of what that structure does, I think, is it gives us a sense of the capacity of change that is possible, um, which I, I think links with JPG's vision of hope. So say that in speaking of these three states, JP2 articulated his personalist vision, that human acts are performed through the body, and human acts possess an intrinsic meaning due to the personal, natural meaning of the body. So actions aren't just for us to say what they mean, they have a, a meaning already. Say, so John Paul II's thought has many commentators who don't all follow the same scheme in outlining his thoughts. Um, Christopher West is probably the most famous commentator, summarizer of his thoughts, certainly in the USA. Um, 
Anthony Percy's word. I'm going to follow the bottom bit of this page. So John Paul II's Genesis focus is on In the Beginning, which portrayed the original solitude of Adam alone, the original unity of the first couple, and also unity with God, original nakedness, which links in with the significance of the body and relationship, and original sin, in terms of how, how that changes, distorts, wounds our experience of the other three. And what I haven't assigned for you, but the later half of Percy's book, he then elaborates the four qualities of the human person, how that plays out in terms of the body being symbolic, that the body reveals our inner human nature, that the body is nuptial, wedding, um, that the original unity shows how the body is inherently ordered towards nuptial union. Free and fallen, it's interesting that Percy puts these two together as a single quality. Um, the experience of original nakedness shows how we relate to each other freely, um, but the experience of original sin shows us how we exist because of the effects of sin, the sins of our first parents. So yes, Adam and Eve had freedom in their relationship with each other, but what we inherit is a wounded freedom um, in our fallen state. But the last of those qualities of the human body is that it is redeemed. Um, so that if we only understand the body as damaged, we haven't fully understood it. That the human body is redeemed, the experience of knowing and loving Christ enables us to understand the body in its redeemed state. So we turn to page three. Um, so I've basically got about a page on each of these three states. The original man, the historical man, and the eschatological man. Um, so historical is as we experience him fallen. Eschatological, the future hope that we can achieve. Original, there at the beginning. First, the original man. So the account of Genesis, as I say, was the prime focus of John Paul II's reflections. And if we remember when we outlined scriptural teaching on sex and marriage, um, our analysis both started and ended with Genesis. So Genesis, in the beginning, the Lord Jesus, when he comes, <coughs> says, in the beginning. Um, and when we looked at the epistles, they also, the last uh, Pauline household code reflected back to in the beginning. So when the Bible talks about what is the meaning of sex and marriage, it repeatedly is making that reference to. So John Paul II in that sense isn't being original or new. And I don't know if you picked this up from Percy's description, but as I say, that the experiences of the original man are at the root of every human experience. 
Now, this isn't just a description of the historical past in Eden. So this is a very important point to grasp if we're going to understand what he's trying to do. Um, what he, the, John Paul II is saying is everybody has these original experiences. It's not just they happened in the origin at the beginning of time, but they're original to each of us. We all have them. We all have this experience of solitude. We all have this experience of unity and so forth. Yes, you, so you, you understand that what's being articulated there by original? So, original solitude. Um, as I say, I think this is possibly his most profound observation. Um, that Adam was alone there in the garden. That Adam sought another but found no one. So in this we have, as I said, his personalist focus, that we're made for others, that we're inherently relational. You know, again, he's not arguing on the structure, the nature of being as such, but focusing on the question of what is a person, what is a person experience. We have this experience of being alone. And I'm, I'm not happy being alone. I want to not be alone. Phenomenological focus, human existence teaches us this, both individually and collectively. The original man, Adam, experienced original solitude, the profound sense of knowing that he is alone among God's creatures. He alone among God's creatures was a person called Salah. Is that, is that scriptural image, all the ad animals brought to Adam None is worthy to be a partner. None is worthy to be a helpmate to him. And then this observation there in Genesis, it was not good for man to be alone. Therefore, God transformed Adam's original solitude into an original unity by creating Eve. So Adam and Eve, um, Adam, through his body, recognizes Eve as a person different from the other creatures. So his body, her body, they are not the same as these other creatures, these animals. Through his body, he recognizes her as one he's called to. The unity of man and woman in one flesh confirms that Adam and Eve were alone among God's creatures in their call to love. They recognize their uniqueness and their call to form a communion of persons. Original unity. So, what among the foundational human experiences, one of them is this experience of unity, of a communion of persons. Living in a reciprocal form, in a relationship of reciprocal gift, and this relationship is precisely the fulfillment of man's original solitude. So that's a direct quote from JP2. How is the solitude fulfilled in this relationship? The original unity. Original nakedness in the state of innocence before the fall. The Adam and Eve recognized each other as persons through their bodies 
And though the man and the woman were both naked, they were not ashamed. In their original nakedness, they saw and knew each other, quoting JP2, with all the peace of the interior gaze, which creates precisely the fullness for the intimacy of persons. Now note this gives a vision of the goodness of sexuality in contrast to you know, various preconciliar attitudes that had a suspicion of it. Then gift. Um, it's hard to summarize the significance of gifts in the theology of the body, but it's huge. Um, it starts in the Genesis context with the, the fact that all creation is a gift from man. The creation reveals to us that God is love, for selfless giving flows only from one who loves. The natural meaning of the body, i.e. that it is ordered to mutual self-gift, reflects deep within the human person the very structure of creation itself and the meaning of God's creative act. So I look at my body and I see that it is even at a bodily level, designed to relate to another, to relate to another, giving myself to another, and that in this I have an image of the very structure of creation, of God's giving in creation. Okay, over the page. again summarizing a big point in one bullet point there but the body in revelation so jp2 is saying that the body reveals well what does it reveal he says the body reveals divine mysteries so he talks about the spiritual being revealed in the body the physical thing that god revealed through the body reaching its climax in the mystery of the incarnation Well, particularly for us as a moral theology focus, um, the human body also reveals man to himself. So, you know, this was one of the themes of Gaudium et Spes at Vatican II, a repeated theme in the preaching of John Paul II, but it's here in this catechesis, that where does man find out about himself? Jesus reveals man fully to himself, but the, the human body in this context, reveals man to himself. What does it reveal? Well, the body reveals that man is a personal subject. For example, Eve's body revealed her to Adam as a conscious subject, a person like him to be loved, not just an animal, not just a plant, not just a thing. That the body indicates that, reveals that, that we're personal. The body reveals a structure capable of giving itself to another, um, particularly with respect to fertility. So Adam can, with his body, give his fertility to Eve and vice versa. That the body reveals this, that there's something of ourselves we can give to the other. 
and that the body reveals a free subject. So say, in contrast to communist and Nazi ideology and oppression, John Paul II's teaching is permeated with this emphasis on freedom. So as I try to summarize there in bold, um, thus the body reveals the essential core of being a person, namely the call to give oneself in love to another person and to receive, in turn, his or her gift of self. And this is what's called the, the nuptial meaning of the body, the wedding meaning of the body. And just pulling that out a little more detail, the nuptial meaning of the body. So the conjugal act, the nuptial act, what does it reveal about man to himself? Well, it's an act of union, uniting the couple in one flesh. It's an act of self-giving, uh, the mutual giving of fertility. Um, and so the mutuality enables an equal male-female dignity and complementarity. So this, again, was one of John Paul II's themes. You know, against feminism that would seek to blur the differences He's saying, yes, there are differences, but they're complementary differences and an equal dignity to both. That the act is about generating new life uh, and that that's inherent in the nature of their union. So what is the male-female union? What is the nuptial union? It's inherently about new life. And with that, that the body is revealed in fatherhood and motherhood. So that the gift of children, who are a sign of the couple's unity and inseparability, um, they are that, a sign of the couple's unity and inseparability, as well as a reminder of the couple's identity as father and mother. Okay, I've taught non-stop for half an hour. Um, shall we reflect a little on that first section, the original man? Any comments? So does this feel like a description of human existence? Original solitude, original unity. He does, and that is one of the things he articulates in the theology of the body context. Um, trying to think, that was that in Percy? The, he makes a reference to it, um, but but doesn't really. Um, 
So the eschatological state, the final state, the wedding symbolism is the union of Christ and the church in heaven. Um, the eschatological state, also Jesus says, they will not be given in marriage in heaven. Um, so that that nuptial meaning in heaven takes on a totally different form. It's a direct cleaving to God in heaven. And so the celibate on earth is already anticipating our final state. So it's a living out of it in a different form. But that celibacy only has meaning as a partaking in that, as a, a nuptial union with the Lord even now. that make or not make sense so that being celibate isn't being alone it's about being with him partaking of that heavenly marriage with him already whereas marriage on, in this world is a partaking of it in a different form that the husband and wife to each other express, realize this sacrament, this sign of the union of Christ and his church in heaven. So that it's the same nuptial reality, but lived out two different forms and John Paul II in his catechesis does articulate um, the traditional teaching that the celibate state is objectively speaking higher than the married state because it is a direct cleaving to use St Paul's language with an undivided heart to the Lord so he says, in marriage, the husband loves God through loving his wife. And in marriage, the wife loves God through loving her husband. So they love God through an intermediary. Whereas the celibate loves God directly with an undivided heart. isn't alien to the tradition um, it is in the tradition already but I think John Paul II gives it a much gives celibacy a much more positive description than some presentations of it that see it in terms entirely almost of self-denial and sacrifice which it is as well but it's deeper meaning is not true which means that in the Eskadon, uh, the union, for example, the married couple is broken and it's becoming direct. I think we'd probably want to say transformed rather than broken. 
yeah? Because there will be many people in heaven that had more than one spouse on earth and that their first spouse died and they married again. So the church only permits that because there isn't, as the Lord says, they don't marry in heaven. Um, but they won't be strangers to each other in heaven either. So St. Thomas says that the affection we have to those on earth we will also have in heaven, but that will carry forward. My friends in, on earth will be my friends in heaven as well. I will somehow have a, a unique relationship with them. But in terms of marriage, it will lack that exclusivity in heaven that it has on earth. That's a good question. Um, it certainly is there in the scripture as the vision, isn't it? So Adam has friendship with God, um, but somehow that, that isn't enough. That Adam's looking for one like himself. And on one level, I think I'd have to say, I think that just is our human experience. That just seems authentic to hear that description. Somehow, in Christ and in the Incarnation, that is transformed so that actually I am able to relate to God in humanity, in which my celibate solitude isn't a celibate loneliness, but I think it has its meaning through the nuptial Got anything to throw in there? 
Okay, let's forget that we're celibates and that celibacy is a big deal for us. Um, <laughs> and think about, you know, what this is saying for the uh, 95% of our, our parishioners who are going to be married and so forth. This question of original solitude, yearning for another, original unity, um, the, this nuptial significance that's there from the very beginning, that the body speaks of this. Does this feel authentic? Does it feel natural? Does it feel useful as a way of speaking? The biggest difficulty I see with really teaching it is that none of us were born into solitude. Since Adam, there has been no human to experience that degree of solitude. Anyone got anything to throw out on that? So the original solitude experience is sort of twofold. The second meaning is this alone, recognizing that we're alone. Yeah. But the Pope says that the first experience of original solitude is just having that consciousness of saying, oh, like discovering your eye, I think is how mm. personalists would phrase that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the first meaning of solitude. And I think that's the one that maybe is most, or is still as applicable because you know, mm -hmm. we're all born into a family or some sort of relationship, right? And Adam was too, in a way, I guess, he was born in a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that discovering of ourself as a person, we can only do in solitude because we're, as persons in community, I think that's part of every person's maturity is discovering who I am as a person, that I am. Yeah. Person, and then from there, you can look out at others. Trish.
why I was asking why would God create another person if God was with that person mm. and there was no and there was still another need for them for the Adam to have a different person. Right. So he possibly could it's possible that he couldn't truly love, return that love to God, even in that original state. Yeah. That that's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So theology of the body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, well, I guess I'm kind of going back to where we were before. How does that corporeal complementarity figure in with those of us that are called the celibacy? Is it just, you know? Got a one trap mind in this room. <laughs> 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 okay, but, but yeah. Um, yeah, is it just, I mean, is it loving others as, you know, sons and daughters of God? Is it loving each other through, I guess, friendship or whatever? Is that... But that we don't love each other as angels. Yeah. So that I'm relating to another through his body. Now, not through his body as I would to a wife, mm-hmm. but as a body. That that's how we experience each other. Um, and so all the other bits of the, the body language of the expression to each other um, this is bodily um, and the fullness of that is expressed in the nuptial sense but that there's all kinds of other things I relate bodily even apart, even before that mm-hmm. back to Brian's point about so none of us are born alone like Adam but I found over the years as a priest, when I preach about loneliness, I get more of a reaction than almost anything else. Loneliness is one of the foundational human experiences. When you preach about loneliness within marriage, you will see a lot of heads nodding. Um, in the, even within a marriage, even within a happy marriage, there are these things where we feel alone. My, my spouse doesn't understand me. My spouse doesn't... Um, and in that sense the, the, the original experience in the sense that we all have this experience of being alone I think is, is Adam's experience is all of our experience so yes it's not as literal as it's described in Genesis but um, you might almost say that the experience of solitude is more real to many people in the experience of unity. Okay, last comment, then we're going to move on to the next. Okay, let, let's look through the little section on historical man then. So, page five. So, 
the original experience, so, you know, yes. I noticed there is a mixture in JP2's language of it being the original Adam and Eve's experience, but also somehow being original to each of us. But in this three-stage analysis, we're comparing the original happy, blessed, perfect experience of Adam and Eve with how we experience all of this historically, the historical man, yeah? So historical meaning as we encounter Adam and uh, man and woman. No longer in the original innocence of Eden, affected by the inheritance of original sin. So what does this change? Well, shame. So Adam and Eve hid their nakedness from each other and from God. Um, they made clothes for each other, but they only did this after sin. The shame hinders man and woman from being a communion of persons. Their bodies can no longer perfectly express their personhood. From now on, their, our bodies and wills would not operate in harmony to reveal the value of each person. That shame expresses the disturbance of the tranquility, specifically at the level of sexual complementarity to which the persons have been gifted to each other. Um, come back to the text of the different senses of shame that was in Percy's book later, but you'll notice he was elaborating a bit outside of JP2's own writing, um, but shame has a number of different significances. JP2 connects lust and shame. So what's the source of this shame? Well, among other things, lust that I experience in myself, that I want this other in front of me in a lustful manner. I want them as an object, but they're not an object, they're a person. So I have a sense of shame about that. The source of this shame is lust, because they no longer see each other exclusively as a person to be loved, rather they see the other at times as a person to be used as an object. Thus lust threatens the nuptial meaning of the body. Um, and quoting again that the heart has become, he says, a battlefield between lust and love. So I'm guessing most of you have heard this phrase, the personalist norm um, in John Paul II's writings. So the personalist norm, rule, we are to relate to each other as persons, not as objects. Persons are called to be loved as persons, not used as objects. And positively, the experience of shame arises from our awareness that the other person is to be valued precisely as a person. So shame therefore has a, a positive value in reminding me, pointing out to me, alerting me to engage to the other, not as an object. Now, the reality and possibility of redemption. So sin does not have the last word. Christ has redeemed us bodily on the cross. Um, St. Paul refers to the redemption of our bodies by the transformation in grace. Uh, purity, uh, John Paul II says, 
which starts in the sense of temperance, meaning self-control, becomes more than mere abstinence, so that it is truly felt with the heart, restoring feeling, and even mere looks, restoring even mere looks, to that that they regain that authentically spousal content of their meaning. In contrast with someone dominated by concupiscence, the person of purity, in possessing himself more fully, can become more fully a true gift for another person. Connects this with piety. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the body goes with purity and joy. And redeemed, man and woman can find themselves in the freedom of giving themselves. So the historical man, as we experienced it, isn't an innocence. We have lust. We have with that shame. But in the redemption in Christ, it's possible to regain um, that living of the personless norm relating to the other as a person, not as an object. Let's connect that with the last page I want us to cover this morning, the eschatological man. Page six. Um, so you're just stating the obvious, eschatological, what does it mean? It means in the state in heaven, in the eschaton. And in this sense, the bodies are not just in our current redeemed state, but in the resurrected state. So that the re resurrection, John Paul II says, is the definitive accomplishment of the redemption of the body. So what does the redeemed body look like? My fallen body, what will it look like fully redeemed? Well, fully redeemed it will look like the resurrected body. So the existence of bodies in heaven teaches us about their dignity now, and with that, about the dignity and meaning of sexuality. So, somewhat almost bizarrely, you might say, um, John Paul II speaks of sexuality in heaven. So he notes, our resurrected bodies will be of the same gender as our earthly bodies. That human bodies will preserve their specific masculine or feminine character. The resurrected bodies will be spiritualized and changed, even though they will still be male and female. But humans won't become angels. We will have bodies. that harmony will be restored, um, that the spiritualized bodies, you know, St. Paul uses this phrase that almost sounds like a contradiction, a spiritualized body, um, but this is also what John Paul II says, spiritualized bodies will have a deep harmony between body and soul. The flesh will no longer make war against the spirit, that our bodies will be spiritualized our humanity divinized, and thus the redemptive transformation will be complete. And that this is, the trajectory of all of this, the fulfillment of the nuptial meaning of the body.
nuptial meaning points towards relationship, to love. The nuptial meaning relates to the Trinity. And so, in a blunt quote there, the original and fundamental meaning of being a body as also of being as a body, male and female, that is precisely that spousal meaning, is united to the fact that man is created as a person and is caused to a life in communo personarum, in the communion of persons. Marriage and procreation do not definitively determine the original and fundamental meaning of being a body, nor of being as a body, male and female. Marriage and procreation only give concrete reality to that meaning in the dimensions of history. So what he's saying, marriage and procreation do have a meaning now, but that, that will be transformed into that greater meaning, special, nuptial meaning in the communion of persons in heaven. Comments, thoughts? So, trust about original man, historical man, eschatological man. idea how much John Paul II's theology of the body would articulate that distinction. I mean, we know from the scripture, redeemed man has a higher dignity than we had before the fall. So, you know, on all kinds of levels, we're in a better state than Adam and Eve. But um, in this context, what's he articulating about that? He seems to me to be more saying that the harmony that was there at the beginning will be restored rather than wanting to make a point about it being different. I mean, he does, I suppose, spiritualized bodies. Adam didn't have a spiritualized body. He had a bodily body, whatever that was. But it was one that wasn't subject to decay. Right. Or the fuddling of our thinking that goes with all of the mm -hmm. the inheritance of, of original sin. So your exact question is I guess if there's a difference between the eschatological man and the original state of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what is the difference? 
Well, there definitely is a difference, is one way of answering the question. Um, in the theology of the body context, John Paul II talks about it being a spiritualized body, so it is different to Adam's. It's not just. I suppose Adam's body was looking for Eve. In heaven, we won't. Okay. That 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 nuptial meaning will be transformed, lived out, fulfilled, in a different way, directly cleaving to God. In a spiritualized body. Features of that escalatory body being 